There's this Roald Dahl story that ran in the New York that I think about all the time. And basically it's a, a man who invents a box that makes sounds audible to him that other people can't hear. And then he takes it out in the garden and the neighbor is like pruning her roses and all he can hear are screams. That's the level I think that we all get to when we're working with animals and their people and you see all these little moments of uh, misery. Or like sometimes I wake up thinking about, God, dogs have to ask every time they need to go to the bathroom for their entire life. <laughs> like, like. My name is Annie Grossman and I'm a dog trainer. I'm the owner and co-founder of School for the Dogs, a dog training center located in Manhattan's East Village. School, school for the dogs, for the dogs. On this podcast, I talk about dog training, interview industry experts, discuss pet trends, answer questions, and try to communicate my love for all things related to behavioral science. Thanks a lot for listening. I think this podcast will help make you the best possible human best friend any dog could ask for. Last month, an article was published in the Wall Street Journal, uh, an opinion piece by a guy named Mark Nada. The title was, I'm disciplining my dog, not torturing her. The subtitle was, exhausted, I gave in and tried a prong collar. I'm glad I did. A lot of trainers I know wrote to the Wall Street Journal complaining about this piece uh, and about how uh, it really wasn't reported at all and contained a lot of misinformation. They did published, sorry, they did publish um, some letters to the editor about the piece. I wanted to talk to my friend Kiki Yablon about it. Uh, like me, Kiki used to be a full-time journalist. She was an editor at the Chicago Reader, and now she's a full-time dog trainer. So what I'm sharing with you today is uh, a pretty just candid chat that she and I had. Uh, I started with her talking about that Roald Dahl story because I really liked that quote. Anyway. Hope you enjoy this conversation with this very interesting person, uh, someone I am very glad to know. My name is Kiki Yablon. I am a dog trainer based in Chicago, Illinois. My certifications include or are Karen Pryor Academy certified training partner. Uh, I'm also a new KPA faculty member. I have my first group going right now, and CPDTKA. I also, other things that I do that are related are that I work for Dr. Susan Friedman, helping as a co-instructor 
or TA for the Living and Learning with Animals course, and I helped with the inaugural How Research Works course this year and do a little bit of work for the IABC's principles and practices. I'm get, probably getting the name a little bit wrong. Um, <laughs> they're, they're sort of flagship course. There's a functional assessment and intervention design section of that that some of the TAs help uh, review the work. Can, can you explain what the Living and Learning with the Animals course is for anyone listening who's not familiar with it? Sure. It's Susan's sort of Susan's flagship course. It's a, an eight-week online course for animal professionals and some other people, interested parties, that kind of teaches behavior analysis 101 or applied behavior analysis with animals 101. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're in the middle of a, a session now. It runs twice a year, usually in January and July. And there's eight weeks of lectures and six weeks of homework and a final exam. Teaching assistants engage in soft Socratic dialogue with the students on their homework questions. There's one homework question a week. So I think you and I first met about maybe 10 years ago, but before I even met you, I heard about you (laughs) through the wonderful writer and my friend, Liz Armstrong, who said to me, you know, you're going from journalism to dog training. And I actually had an editor who's doing the same thing. Uh, You got to connect with Kiki. And I was like, no way. (laughs) Here, I thought I was so original. (laughs) Um, So maybe talk a little bit about how you, your journey from writing to dog training. Yeah. So I went to school for journalism. I sort of decided at age 16 that that's what I wanted to do. I specifically wanted to be a music journalist or write for Rolling Stone or something like that in high school. I went to Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. I graduated. I went through the Radcliffe Publishing course, and then I went right into journalism. So I was an editor for about 15 years before I got a dog. (laughs) So I worked at Outside Magazine, and I worked at Chicago Magazine, and I worked at the Chicago Reader for a long time. Were you the editor-in-chief there? Briefly, just very briefly at the end. But for most of the time there, I was either the music editor or the managing editor. So what was the point where you were like, okay, I want to do this other thing? Well, in 2005, I got a dog. And I thought that I was, like many people, I thought I was going to take my dog everywhere with me and it would be my best friend and, you know, the whole Disney fantasy. And pretty quickly became apparent that she was not comfortable with a lot of different situations. She wasn't comfortable being left home alone. She wasn't super comfortable with other dogs. We we think something sort of happened at the daycare that I took her to and my husband went on tour, but we don't know that for sure. But anyway, she had a lot of struggles and I got interested in dog training by trying to help her. So I happened to live next door at the time to Jessica Whiten. She's now a curator at Marine Mammal Sanctuary in Iceland, (laughs) but she was a senior trainer at the Shedd Aquarium, and she introduced me to clicker training pretty much right when I got my dog, and I didn't have any idea what she had just showed me, but I 
it looked like magic and I wanted to learn how to do it. So I went and sought out somebody who did clicker training and that's how I found Laura Monaco Torelli. And we took a couple classes with her and like a lot of people after two classes and she was like a superstar in class. And then we were like, yay, she's trained. <laughs> and then she started to have issues with other dogs and people. And basically she hit social maturity and some things that we hadn't noticed as fear kind of probably turned into aggressive responses. So, so I started sort of wandering around trying to find help for her. And I really didn't understand how positive reinforcement could fix behavior that you wanted to get rid of. So I dabbled a little bit with other kinds of training, didn't really love what I was asked to do, went back to Laura, and I just didn't have a lot of money either for training at that time, and so I just started to read books. And then I think after about three years where I hadn't read a, like a book outside of work that wasn't about dog training, I thought, you know, maybe this is something I'm interested in as a gig, you know, and then I started to look at how do you become a dog trainer? And that's mm -hmm. how I found, um, learned more about the Karen Pryor Academy because I had asked Laura if I could intern with her and she was busy for a year because she was going through the first iteration of KPA. So she did take me on eventually as an intern and I started volunteering at a couple of shelters and, or a shelter in the city pound. Then I went through KPA and the rest uh, you, you kind of know. So, <laughs> Did at any point you think you wanted to become someone who writes about dogs and behavior as opposed to someone working with clients? You know, when I first left journalism, the other half of the story is that journalism was starting to struggle. So around 2007, the paper I worked for got sold by its original owners to a small chain of alternative weeklies based in Atlanta and they lost us in bankruptcy court within a year and mm -hmm. then we were owned by a hedge fund mm -hmm. and that's actually how I ended up becoming the editor-in-chief was the, the hedge fund folks fired my beloved boss at a half Starbucks in the Marriott around the corner <laughs> from the offices <laughs> and then I was late to work that day and I got a call saying are you here yet and so now I'll be there in a second. And then I came into that news. So it wasn't, it wasn't how I imagined becoming the editor in chief of something. <laughs> <laughs> and they offered me the job and I took it because I thought I'm going to be doing it anyway. <laughs> if they're mm -hmm. offering it to me and they don't have anybody else lined up, I'm going to be doing it anyway. And I might as well, you know, get paid for it. But I was just starting KPA. I had just started KPA when that happened. So about halfway through KPA, I felt confident that I was going to be okay at it. And so I quit. It took me by surprise. I mean, you're, I think you were in journalism longer than I am. You're a little older than I am. I figured that that's what I would be doing for the rest of my life. And when I decided, actually, I think I want to become a dog trainer, it was partially because it was interesting to me, but partially because I think I smelled that things were not going to get better. I saw the direction things were going and I saw that to make things work, I was probably going to have to take a job where I was going to be writing 10 blog posts a day or something like that, that I didn't think I would be happy doing going from, you know, like a weekly paper or whatever to that. But I remember thinking like, oh, all my successful journalism friends are going to 
look down on me kind of, <laughs> or, you know, I'm, I'm going to watch all these people I know have go have these glorious careers. And to some extent that has happened, but to, in another way, I certainly feel like I have plenty of journalist friends who are like, oh my God, I wish I had become a dog trainer when you did. <laughs> I know. I have a lot of journalism friends who have really never, like, they're still in it somewhat, but they just, or they left the reader, but they never really, like, it took them a long time or they never really went back to working, like, at a full-time place. I think it was just, it was a pretty traumatic experience. I don't mean to speak for them, but. Yeah. um, Well, I know some people who've gone on to be successful, but the majority of journalists I know, I feel like, are doing something sort of journalism adjacent at this point and not with much vigor, I guess. But, yeah. So we're the lucky ones. But to go back to your original question, which mm-hmm. was, did I want to go at it from a writing standpoint? No. <laughs> I really wanted to do something completely different where I moved around physically and didn't do that. And actually, when I first started, I was still actually doing a lot of sort of freelance editing to kind of fill in the gaps. Mm-hmm. And I also took a, a retail job. I took a job at a pet store, which was a big switch. <laughs> yeah. So, Well, I did something similar. I worked at a dog daycare and did some dog walking for a while. Yeah. And I just remember, like, you know, like I'd wake up on a Tuesday or something and be like, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> but And then I would go get a taco and see some dogs. And, <laughs> and so. feel pretty good about life. Yeah. When I was writing, and I I never really had like a, I never had like a beat that I was particularly passionate about. I mean, I guess what I did was like, generally speaking, like lifestyle reporting, but I always felt like I was just kind of writing for hire. And I remember at some point, my mom said something like, you should write about pets, you know, you love dogs. And she handed me, I remember an article, it was maybe in the New York Post or USA Today or something about like how to clean your dog's ears or something along those lines. And I remember thinking like, never, that will never be me. I will never be the person writing about how to clean your dog's ears. Now though, I mean, talk about a change of life plan. I can't imagine writing about anything pet related without having a really strong opinion about it. And in that way, like the kind of journalism I think my mother imagined for me feels impossible. I, I actually wrote something a few years ago for Real Simple that was real simple. <laughs> about, like, it was something about like classifying dogs as if they were like in a yearbook. So like, you know, most popular or whatever. It was really silly, but like I, I did everything I could to like approach it as like seriously as, as possible. And they ended up sort of tinkering with it till it was saying things like, you know, it's a good idea if you have a Labrador to take him for two walks a day or, or something like, and I was just uh, like, I was editing. Like, I was like, can you just like not put my name on this? Because like, I have too many thoughts and feelings about all of this to like put my name on this kind of like drivel at this point, which brings uh, me to the article that had us chatting the other day. Can you summarize this Wall Street Journal article? For anyone listening who hasn't read it? Yeah, the author's name was, I don't know how to pronounce it correctly, Mark Nida, mm-hmm. Nida. And it was just a short kind of light piece about how he had decided to use a prong and a shock collar on his Irish setter because the problems that the dog was having with being left alone and walking were inconvenient 
And he then recommended that other people do the same. And this caused pretty big stir in our community. A lot of people were posting about it and sort of dissecting it. And when I was reading it, I was trying to figure out why I felt so mad about it. (laughs) (laughs) And what what I kind because I don't normally at this point, you know, there's an article every other week, you know, lately about dogs and pandemic puppies. And there's a fair bit of misinformation around them, or they interview sort of a range of trainers who are actually giving very different advice and the writer can't tell. And, you know, and I don't, I don't usually get up in arms about those things or post anything about them. But this one made me mad, I think more on an editorial level than a dog training level. Okay. Because I have a lot of empathy for owners who don't know what to do when their dog is struggling and making their life difficult. Sure. And which we'll talk about more later, I think like it's hard to find the right information or know how to find the right information or where to look for the right information. So it didn't as much make me mad that he used those tools, although I feel potentially bad for the dog. Mm -hmm. But what bothered me is (laughs) that it was an opinion piece without any thing to back up the opinion, which is the kind of thing that used to make me mad as an editor. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, like just because it's your opinion doesn't mean that you don't do any reporting don't try to find out what's right. It was just a completely uncurious piece. The only source it cited was PETA, which I don't think he spoke to anybody at PETA. He just talked about PETA's stance on those tools. Stated facts like, you know, oh, it takes, he didn't say what issue it was, but, you know, it takes like an average of 18 months to address this problem or what, I mean, just Without positive reinforcement. Yeah. So that bothered me on a bunch of levels. Like one, it's the worst kind of opinion piece. Mm-hmm. Two, it had to have gone through somebody else mm-hmm. who didn't question that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it got written and it got published without anybody saying, hey, how come you didn't ask anybody if this is true? The tone of it was, I mean, the fact that he, that PETA is like the only place that he mentions speaks to this is that there's this movement of nicey niceness in dog training. Right, he called his dog a sissy. And as opposed to doing what really works. And he talks about positive reinforcement training as like most, this is what most trainers do. He referred to positive reinforcement training in a way that made me think like, oh, I I didn't realize that this was the mainstream kind of dog training. I mean, I'd like to think so, and maybe it is, but the fact that like Cesar Milan has a new show out that's being watched by millions of people every week doesn't make me feel like our science-based, reward-based, however you want to call it, approach to dog training is the go-to for most people and kind of underscored the... It made me feel like, oh, you know, those are just a bunch of cookie pushers who... (laughs) Yeah, that tone was very striking too, especially in, you know, for some reason, our side of the dog training profession is, is pretty female. Yeah, that's true. Um, The language used really, you know, made it sound like you're a pansy if you use positive reinforcement with your dog. My dog is a sissy. Like the language was really reminiscent of other areas of life where that sort of language 
happens that I don't like. <laughs> I think that's so. it's a pet peeve for me that positive reinforcement dog training gets equated with like being heart stars and flowers, flower girl, you know, hippie dippy kind of uh, like that's the way it's characterized a lot where I feel like it doesn't appeal to me because it's about being nice to dogs. I do Which, like being nice to dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly that's a major reason why I like it. But to me, that's. Yeah. I wouldn't want to hear this kind of talk about children. Mm-hmm. You know, I had, I did post something about the article and I had real mixed feelings and sort of bad feelings after doing it because it wasn't a very uh, positive approach to take. But mm-hmm. well, but Kiki, I feel like that's part of the struggle of all of this is that it's hard to speak out in an honest way about people who are doing things differently because it sounds like sour grapes and it sounds like anti-positive. And here we have the word positive in our job description. Yeah. Um, one of but, but I mean, I, I have, I have empathy positive. for people. I, say I have empathy for people who use prong collars. Sure. Uh, I have clients who I haven't asked to take off their prong collar yet because they don't feel safe. You know, it's, it's sort of not about the technique. My irritation was mostly editorial. <laughs> well, I have the same similar feeling about Caesar Milan that I actually only in the last few weeks have I really realized is like, and then I, I posted a podcast episode the other day that was a conversation I had with Kate. And I think that was the first time that I realized that my beef with him is not every other dog trainer's beef with him. Yes. Like, I wish he were not using the methods he uses for sure. And I think that's most dog trainers I know, I think feel the same way. But what gets me is the denial of science that is the snake oil is the, you know, it's like, I often feel like when you know, as an expert who is going into someone's home and getting paid to help solve their problems, people are so wanting the quick and easy solution that they're willing to accept things that don't necessarily make sense simply because there's an expert in the living room or, you know, who is, you know, may or may not be certified. And, you know, I could say jump up and down on one foot three times and yell the word strawberry and like probably someone would do it. And I feel like that's what happens with Caesar Milan. And he's yeah. working with people all the time. I mean, I bought a book when I first started that told me to like eat, always eat before my dog. And so <laughs> yeah. to try to solve her aggression issues, I would like get out some saltine crackers and like kind of eat them and look at her and then put her food down. I mean, how nuts is that? <laughs> exactly. But I know that when I started doing KPA, I mean, before that, if you had said to me, oh, you know, dog training is basically a technology and application of what we know about behavioral science, I think I would have been completely dumbfounded that dog training had anything to do with any kind of science. Would you say that you were in the same boat? I think because before I started doing it, I had read some books that gave me a a clue about that. Like, don't shoot the dog. Right, of course. Um, I had a sense of it, but I didn't have a sense of how broad that science was or I feel like when you're a new dog trainer, you go through a bunch of stages where you're pretty <laughs> sure that you know everything now and then you feel, you know, you, you give people unsolicited advice, you speak like you're really sure of everything. And then I, I think that the more experience you get, the more you hedge everything, mm-hmm. you know, the more the answer is it depends 
And I think that is in part because that's a more sophisticated application of the science. And that's really what science is like. It's not definitive. It's Mm -hmm. always open to new information. So I forgot to mention at the top of the thing that I'm in a grad program taking a bit longer than I hoped to get a master's in applied behavior analysis. Like learning that there was a science behind it was life-changing because also as a, a new dog trainer, like a lot of my questions for Laura early on when I was an intern with her were, well, what do I do if the dog does this? Or what do you do about barking? You know, or what do you do about this issue? Mm-hmm. And her answers were always, well, you know, and then asking for more information. And so when I took LLA for the first time in 2012, I think I described it at the time as I sort of felt like like the heavens had opened up and the angels were singing or something. And it was like, oh, there is order to this. Mm-hmm. There is a framework that you can kind of, you can go back to the edges and there's a place to touch. You're not just swimming around Mm-hmm. totally mixing metaphors, but you're not just swimming around loose in the pool, right? Like you can go back to the this framework mm-hmm. and you're probably going to be able to figure out what to do based on the individual situation. And sometimes you can't change the environment enough to make the changes that would make a difference for the person or the dog, but you've got a much better chance if you have that mm-hmm. framework around you to refer to. So, Well, you know, I'm, I'm working on a a book right now, off and on for a long time, but <laughs> I think it's I think it's finally coming together. And I've been trying to think about what differentiates it from you know a million other books. And I think there's so many dog training books that organize things by problem or by breed. Mm-hmm. What I hope to do is sort of give a broader picture of how you can address this issue or that issue, kind of by um, by understanding conditioning and antecedent arrangements and all the things that I've learned about behavior from dog training that are um, not starting at the specific problem. Yep. When I was first thinking like, hmm, maybe I'd like to do dog training, I pitched an article to the New York Times. This was in 2007 about people wanting to become dog trainers because of the success of the dog whisperer. I think actually a few years before that, I had been assigned a story on people wanting to become yoga instructors, like (laughs) a boom in people becoming yoga instructors. So I thought like, well, maybe I could pitch a similar story, but about dog training. And when I was doing, I mean, I'm so, it's like, I feel really embarrassed now when I go back and read it because I can see how I had no clue and how I was lumping together trainers who knew something with ones who didn't. And I too, you know, was working with an editor, like I wasn't working totally alone. But at no point did anybody say, hold on, are these people certified by reputable body? And at the time, you know, I saw no difference between, you know, what they were doing at Barkbusters and what Ian Dunbar was doing. To me, it was all just dog training. And now I feel like I have so much more of a nuanced view. There was a dog trainer that you guys featured in the Chicago Reader a few times who was using pretty harsh methods. Can you maybe just talk about editing those stories? And Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about the Wall Street Journal thing and how that was irritating because they didn't do what you're supposed to do. They didn't 
didn't do any reporting, maybe didn't do any fact checking, and nobody questioned it because it seemed like a light topic. And one of the things that I always felt like you needed to do no matter what you were covering, and I was, you know, the music editor for a while, and I didn't like stuff that treated music as light. Like if you're going to cover it, go deep. Mm, Yeah. So I worked with a, like a really fantastic young reporter who pitched a story about dog training. And I was excited about it because this was after I got my dog and had some interest and thought I had some knowledge about dog training. And the article was actually about it sort of interwove whether pit bulls can be reformed. I just cringe thinking about it now with anecdotes from this trainer who had been hired by a shelter to rehabilitate a pit bull. And we really tried to, this is the thing that I think uh, is, I think this is separate from the Wall Street Journal thing because they didn't try. But even when you try, like in your case, you try to find experts, especially using kind of the old journalism model of like the facade of objectivity, right? These people say one thing, these people say another thing, it has equal weight, which I think has completely fallen apart in the past four years in journalism. But, you know, and maybe that was always problematic because we interviewed, I think, the wrong people now. And I think we face the same, journalists are people, and I think we face the same problem that the average consumer faced, which is dog training is an unregulated industry. So how do you tell who is an expert? You know, there are certifications from all over the place. How do you tell which of those certifications are better than others? It's really hard to tell. I think it's probably gotten easier since the early 2000s because there's better information and more information on can, the can internet. Can you but explain her approach? She's a shock caller. I don't remember too much more about what she did, but a lot of her talk was about dominance and she referred to herself as the Chicago dog whisperer. Mm-hmm. But what we heard from a lot of local dog trainers who were mad about that story. To her credit, the writer actually followed up on the story because at some point somebody was driving by a park and they saw this trainer working and she had a shock collar around both the dog's neck and around its waist near the genital area and reported her. And she was, I don't know if it was tried or went to court at least for animal cruelty and was not convicted. And part of that, I think, is also because that's one of the ways, the accepted ways that people train dogs. So it sort of all feeds back into itself. Who is right about how to do this and who gets to decide who is right, which I think is the issue with regulation. You know, that's why some people are really worried about regulation coming is because what if it goes like that court case? Mm -hmm. What if somebody comes on and says, well, Cesar Milan's on TV. So that must be an okay way to do it. You know, something about shock collars that I think is nuts that I haven't heard a lot of people bring up in the against shock collar argument is people have them in the same homes as they have children. And I think a lot of children end up playing with a shock collar, either putting it on themselves or playing with shocking the dog. I mean, you can go on YouTube and find countless videos of kids putting shock collars on themselves as like a joke, which makes me wonder how many kids are putting it on their dogs and sort of experimenting or how many parents are putting it on their kids. Just the fact that it's perfectly legal to sell that to anybody is 
shocking haha, to me. But yeah, you know, you also, you brought up the point of it being considered like a light topic. When, you know, going back to like my mom saying, maybe you should write about dogs. That's what I thought, I think at the time. Like, oh, that's, I mean, not that I was doing any kind of real serious journalism. I mean, I really wasn't, but it seemed like extra, it seemed to me like extra fluffy. Whereas now I think it's such a rich topic. There's so much to talk about. And it's a shame that dog training is not taken seriously in the same way that, for instance, maybe horseback riding is as a hobby, right? But just also, I mean, you have a section on cars in the newspapers and on houses and on food. On women. On women. (laughs) But a section on these animals that we spend our lives with and that we can learn so much about is... I mean, why, why is that, do you think? Why do you think it's still not? I don't not know. There, the, the tone of a lot of the articles, like, there's always some bad puns in there. Oh, yes. You know? There's always sort of a little snide remark about, you know, dogs who are, quote, unquote, spoiled. spoiled. Or eating better than their people. Yes. Or wearing clothes or, you know, I think rub a lot of us the wrong way because we think, because we spend a lot of time thinking about, like, the depth of these animals feelings and and see how miserable they are in a way that other people can't there's this rolled doll story that ran in the new yorker in the 40s that i think about all the time oh i have to read it tell me more <laughs> it's called i think it's called the sound machine mm-hmm. and basically it's a, a man who invents a box that makes sounds audible to him that other people can't hear Mm-hmm. And then he takes it out in the garden and the neighbor is like pruning her roses and all he can hear are screams. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think, you know, sometimes I'm sure I'm a bit over sensitive to things just like how people wipe their dog's feet off when they bring them inside by pulling their feet up out from under them or, yeah. you know, putting a dog's harness on it instead of having the dog walk into a harness. And, you know, these are really minor things compared to lots of stuff that people do to animals, but. But you can't unsee it. But that's kind of the depth. That's the level I think that we all get to when Mm -hmm. we're working with animals and their people. And you see all these, all these little moments of misery or like sometimes I wake up thinking about like, God, dogs have to ask every time they need to go to the bathroom for their entire life. (laughs) (laughs) And it makes me like never want to own a dog again. You know, I mean, it's just like, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I think we're probably on the far left end of things. Oh God. Yeah. There, but, but yeah, I don't think stories, we don't think stories about dogs are funny. Like there's a lot of videos about dogs that we don't think are funny. Like you kind of lose your sense of humor and lightness a little bit when you're out helping people with that roll doll story. You know, my dad, for whatever reason that I still don't quite understand was obsessed with like whether or not vegetables have feelings (laughs) and at one point he even like made a logo he wanted to start the it was called something like the society against cruelty to vegetables and it was (laughs) the logo was like a potato looking very sad at a big mound of mashed potatoes with butter on them (laughs) (laughs) yeah well I feel that way about I mean behavior in a larger way I mean just yesterday I was with a friend who was telling me about putting her son in timeouts because he hit her and then but then what do you do when you're outside with public and your kid does something bad? And how do you put the kid in a timeout? And I was like, I was like, I'm just going to not say anything. Because like, I feel like I think about all of these things now. And from the perspective of like, 
you know, dog training and animal behavior, and it's certainly not always appreciated. But I, I know what you're saying about just like the little things people do with dogs that start to feel like yeah. a wrench at your heart. I, think, I mean, I think that the tone that you see in a lot of those articles is part of the reason that people get really up in arms if you start to talk about training or teaching children like you would teach a dog because it feels like a light thing to them or a crude sort of carrot and stick thing Mm -hmm. to them instead of sort of the nuanced compassionate thing that we think we're doing with animals Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so like to become a board certified behavior analyst you have to have a certain number of supervision hours and they cannot be with animals they have to be with human human animals you can't get the same certification as folks who work with humans Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I, I do think that's probably part of that is a sensitivity to the idea that you might be training children like dogs mm-hmm. or I keep saying training, but I really like Susan teaching. always says we should call it teaching for everybody. So I wish that we taught kids like maybe as part of biology class, um, how behavior works because mm-hmm. it's basically another, it's another system of natural selection. Yeah. And so many people still think like somebody asked me the other day, What's one of the more surprising things that you hear? I can't remember if this was the question. The more surprising things that you hear from clients or what are, about what they think is going on or whatever. But the thing that always strikes me is how much people think that what comes before the behavior is causing it mm-hmm. and not what happens after. Yeah, and that, that would be a huge realization for people to have. I feel like it's a huge realization that you could cover in like 30 minutes of fifth grade. <laughs> yeah, right. On the other hand, it's not always that black and white. Like there are some behaviors that are released by antecedents. Like antecedents play, like that's one of the things I feel like that came out of school with is a little bit more nuanced understanding of what influence antecedents might actually have. But yeah, just generally speaking for like getting through life, <laughs> Yeah, you yeah. know, or getting through teaching your dog some stuff that makes your life with your dog easier. I feel like, I mean, what I learned about in math in school a few years ago, maybe it was like an episode of Freakonomics or something where they were talking about how like our generation, like the math that we learned was so much more complex than the math that our parents learned because they were basically trying to make people who could build bombs, like post cold war education was very different than you know, like the science and math that our parents got. And I thought, you know, the math that I really use, I honestly probably could have learned in like a week of middle school, like percentages, fractions. I mean, the the stuff that... A little bit of solving for X, maybe. Yeah, right. Pretty basic stuff. I mean, not, I don't necessarily regret having learned more advanced stuff, but I certainly don't remember most of it and don't use very much of it. And I feel like that's kind of the degree of information about behavior that I wish was, that had been injected into my mind as a kid, because I feel like it would have really helped me just like navigate the world a little bit better. Certainly, certainly helped me help my dogs more. And tell me about being a KPA instructor. I mean, you've, you've come full circle in a way in that way. What kind of people are you seeing wanting to become dog trainers? Um, I think it's a, um, I mean, my, my sample is really small, so maybe talk to me again in a year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm just on my first group. So, mm-hmm. But there's a range from people who do training as a hobby to folks who were, have been working in a shelter 
to um, people who are already sort of doing dog trainer stuff. And actually a vet tech nurse who, so the real range, which is, that was the case when I went to KPA too. Like I was sort of on the junior trainer side and there were people there who were, had been training for decades. Oh yeah. I mean, having now met lots of people who've gone through it, I kind of can't believe I started knowing as little as I did when I see people going in. Right. I think there's a mix. Like I think I think it's become, you know, as, as any program like that expands, probably you get more folks who don't have experience. I think a lot of the early KPA grads were people who are, were already dog trainers but wanted this sort of solidified understanding of clicker training and also the certification and support that go with it. And I, I think now they have a foundations course. So if you don't have sort of the prior experience that would help you be successful in the professional course, you can take foundations course first. Mm -hmm. Um, And they also offer other version, like there's the dog trainer comprehensive course, which is sort of like KPA, but without certification. You know, I have, I have some friends who took KPA and never planned to take clients, but they just wanted that sort of level of understanding depth. So, well, one question I like to ask, Every dog trainer I talk to is if somebody's listening and is interested in themselves maybe changing careers and becoming a dog trainer, what would be your number one piece of advice? I mean, I think the advice I got back then was to, like, before you bother trying to apply to the academy or KPA, you should, um, I think I read this on the, it was the San Francisco SFSPCA academy at the time what's now gene donald's academy i think it had they actually had a page that was like here's what you should be doing before you mm-hmm. apply and one was sort of getting some experience like at a shelter or as an intern with a trainer mm-hmm. or something like that and another was had a short list of books to read i think now there's probably more opportunity to do things like take the kpa foundations course and and stuff like that and I almost think it might be a good idea to do that sort of thing and get or read some of those books before you go to the work at the shelter because some places you're going to go and you're going to learn stuff that doesn't jive with. Um, yeah, absolutely. You don't know what you don't know. Right? Yeah. So, and then, you know, interning with trainers, not as easy as it sounds <laughs> a lot of times because trainers are busy, often one person businesses. Yeah. But probably like finding a good trainer and being willing to just observe and mop and, <laughs> mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I mean, you guys have a great program for that. And I, I've, I've sent another journalist your way. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that so, part of that is because I know when I was starting out in Cape 2, both of us did not find that New York City was full of dog trainers who were welcoming newbies with open arms we both yeah. sort of felt like it was hard to find anybody who wanted to share, nurture, <laughs> whatever, you want, however yeah. you want to put it. I, mean, it's, I think it's just a time thing. Like, sure, you know, yeah. I, you kind of can only charge so much and there's only so many hours in a day. Yeah. So. Um, well, that's why I've suggested to people, you know, like contact trainers and offer to pay. Yeah. I mean, our program is paid. Yeah, take some classes. That's a simple answer. Yeah, take some classes, but but also say, you know, can I shadow you and I will pay you, <laughs> you know, yeah. per hour or whatever, um, because that's going to incentivize someone to pay more attention to you. And, and yeah, there are so many hours in the day and um, it is 
it is effort to try and I mean and also if if you are nurturing more novice trainers ideally you want to be doing it right yeah that's been sort of a hold up for me like I don't I don't want to do a bad job (laughs) with somebody well I am excited that you are a KPA instructor and uh, do you feel like we talked enough about how hard it is to get to report on well I mean if someone's listening to this and they're a reporter I think the takeaway is look for someone who's certified by the Certification Council for Professional Dog Trainers, right? Like, I think that the thing that they need to know is that it is an unregulated industry. Yeah. And so there's no standard body of knowledge that all of the organizations or trainers that you could find operating, making money, certifying people are going to agree on. And that... There is a science of behavior that underlies the type of dog training that tends to be recommended by people with formal education in either animal behavior or behavior science. There, I mean, there are a number of sciences that underlie it, but in terms of the science that we use to kind of change behavior by changing the environment, that's largely the science of behavior analysis. And that looking for people who have some education in that, looking for experts in that field. Like, you know, I remember when I worked at newspapers, sometimes you would have a book from the local university with like a list of like all the professors and what they were experts in, you know, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. maybe there needs to be a, a handbook like that for a resource book for the media, how to get good information about dog training. I also think like, there are a lot of people studying dogs now in a more serious way. Like that was mm-hmm. not an academic pursuit back when, when I was involved in editing the story that we tried really hard on and still managed to not do a great job on. Is there any analogous fields, you think, that um, are so unregulated and misunderstood? Probably. I'm, I mean, I'm just but I mean, like off my head. I always think about like when I was at Chicago Magazine, like every year there was like this best doctors package. And I was just thought, like, how the hell do we know who the best doctors are? I feel like you'd have to be a doctor. to. <laughs> they have good publicists. <laughs> right? You know, so I, like, that's the thing, too, about, like, like, Yelp and why I don't participate in Yelp. Like, how does the average person know how to even review a dog trainer? Oh, I feel um, like Yelp It's going to be based reviews. on effectiveness, which is one consideration for sure. But at New York Magazine, which I generally like and read has for years or whenever they did their like last best of where they mentioned a dog trainer they mentioned this dog trainer who is a dog trainer who uses shot collars and we've had several people who have come to us with dogs who have been like damaged basically from working with this person and he is the new york magazine best dog trainer in new york city and has gotten probably tons of business from that title. And I've, I've written, and whenever they do roundups, I, I'm one of the trainers, I guess, that they talk to when they do roundups of like products, you know, this leash or that treats. And, and inevitably, 
this other trainer is in those roundups too. And each time I write and I say, like, you know, um, I really wish you guys, you know, you don't have to pick us as the best dog trainers in New York, but I could give you a list of people who are actually certified certification council who aren't using aversive methods, but I don't know how to say this stuff. Like, I mean, this is what we're talking about. I don't know how to say this stuff without sounding like holier than thou or like, oh, this person takes it too seriously. I feel like it all ends up sounding like that to people who aren't in it. Yeah. But I mean, in, in terms of, I mean, how, how do you think? I mean, how are they picked? I, that, I mean, I think it's... Oh, enough. I know how they're picked. I mean, probably both been on the other side of a best of issue. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, they're horrific. The reader never did them until we got bought and then we were forced to, um, to do best ofs. Right. They're picked. Part, it's part of why I left, to be honest. Like, that was part of what I hated about what, it was becoming either someone has a good publicist or the guy two desks down from you knows someone who had a good experience right it's his favorite <laughs> it's his favorite restaurant or the best dog trainer or they have readers vote and then mm. people drum up i mean how many times do you see that on facebook like people asking people from all over the country that they're friends with on facebook to vote for them as you know the or best some local thing best yeah. dog trainer of whatever town they're in yeah that's true um, too in order to try to squeeze out the local shock collar trainer and it's meaningless. And so that's not a good way for journalists to find information about dog mm. training. And I do think like some of the organizations that we probably participate in are doing sort of more outreach that way. I think IABC in particular has kind of done a good job of kind of getting into the lay press. So journalists are humans. So I think we can expect that they will know about as much as any other human about how to find a dog trainer. So one thing I do a lot is if I can't help someone because I'm too far booked out or whatever, in addition to sending recommendations, which, you know, my recommendations might also be busy. Mm -hmm. Right now, everybody I like is busy. I send them position statements on how to find a trainer so that you can kind of try to inoculate them about, you know, against yeah. damaging. Yeah. Well, I'm actually, I'm doing a presentation for the animal medical center this week and it's about going back to work and like making sure you're setting up your dog for success as you go back to work. But I decided to start it out with like, this is how to find a good trainer. You know, here yeah. are some certifications to look for because I figure, you know, I'm going to take this opportunity to talk to a wide group of people who maybe never think about dog training, about how to, yeah. how to find Yeah, you might hit a journalist in there somewhere, mm -hmm. you know. Well, I hope, I have to say that I, I mean, I should say I feel like my goal for myself at this point in my life is to just get more people excited about dog training and behavior. And I hope that I can use my you know, former career in journalism to that end. And, and while I know it's not what you're doing right now, exactly, I hope and think that you are going to inspire people too, whether that's teaching future trainers or through writing or editing. That's part of, I think, what's changed since both of us were in journalism is that everybody has some degree of access to the same audience that previously only journalists did. That's true. Mm -hmm. You know? So, like, when I did start writing about dogs and behavior again, I wrote for a local rescue that has a wide reach, you know? Yeah, so, I mean, to some degree, we, we're kind of going around instead of through 
the press. Mm. You know, you're, you're doing a podcast that anyone anywhere could listen to. Yeah. I mean, Um, for me, the heartbreaking thing is that the, the person I think that's still the number one dog trainer anybody thinks ever knows is Cesar Milan. And it's, it's heartbreaking to me that that hasn't changed. I don't think in 15 years, but but you, you seem a little bit more positive <laughs> or more optimistic. I, I know. Well, part of it, I mean, I kind of doubt he's going to have the same audience at this point. No, well, not the same, same audience as he had, you mean? Yeah, like I feel like maybe, like wasn't his second show was sort of diminishing returns. And I think that, that the media market is also a lot more, like the TV market is a lot more segregated, like, yeah. you know, I don't, flip through channels. That's true. You know, but I, we do have a lot of clients, you know, we have a survey people fill out saying, you know, what kind of dog training or information have, if, if they're signing up for something, you know, what have you done in dog training before? What sort of resources have you checked out? And a lot of people reference Brandon McMillan's masterclass. Are you familiar with him at all or the masterclass? Only in that I get that ad every single time I try to watch a Kiko Pup video. <laughs> Yeah, and he's big on, I mean, he even sells a product that's basically like coins in a can, but you can buy his coins in a can, or I think he has one episode of his show where he like ties a shoe to a dog's collar because the dog... Two shoes. Two shoes. And, you know, this is what people are consuming. But maybe things are changing, and we're we're reaching more and more people. Yeah, and even strictly regulated industries are not free from this kind of stuff you know sure. there's dr phil and dr oz and like you know gwyneth paltrow right you know <laughs> and well i don't, don't want to get too far <laughs> you know a lot of non-evidence-based health information yeah. you know they fight that on the veterinary side of things with animals mm-hmm. too it just kind of like mostly i want to spend my energy like i got Plenty of people who are asking me what I think. <laughs> I'm not saying, like, oh, everyone's asking me what I think. I mean, just, like, I have enough, like, that I'm booked out a couple months. And, you know, I'm just going to start there. And when I get a little bit less busy, I'd like to get back to blogging, which I haven't done in a while. Sort of turned into Instagram posts and things like that. Well, thank you so much for talking, Kiki. All and right. I hope to get to Chicago sometime soon. I um, hope so, too. We can go to your cousin's pie shop. Have you ever been? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah? We have a spinning J-Pi downstairs right now. Oh, super jealous. (laughs) Yep. All right. Well, I do hope we'll get out there sometime soon and uh, we'll get to hang out. That Um, would be nice. Thank you so much for listening. And special thanks to Bill and Lizzie of Toast Garden for the amazing theme song. You can find Toast Garden at youtube.com slash toastgarden. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping at storefortheDogs.com. And you can learn more about us at schoolforthedogs.com. You can also connect with other listeners by downloading our brand new app. Just visit schoolforthedogs.com slash community.